is a cold open these days? I, I was is it, start, is it I made was... from magic cold snow from the North Pole? Santa baby, can you really <laughs> tell me? You know, still better than Mariah Carey. This is Kevin Conroy, and you're listening to The Drift Space. Oh my god. Welcome to the Drift Space, ladies and gentlemen. I am your host for the evening, JR. I'm G. And I'm Rebecca. And it's that time of year again, the time where we gather close to loved ones, get close to the fire, get all snuggly, get our hot chocolate out, take a trip with me back. Let's say school just got out. You're ready for Christmas. You're you're putting the tree up and you've got the TV on. And what comes across the screen but those classic stop-motion animation movies. You know, Frosty the Snowman, uh, Here Comes Santa Claus, stuff like that. That's the kind of stuff we're going to be covering today, just because we feel nostalgic. A question. Yeah. What channel did you have it on after school? Because I I didn't have that one. Well, I, 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 I guarantee I'm, you there were a lot of multicolored superheroes summoning giant robots on, on the yeah, channel. Yeah, we, we were watching I... Konami. <laughs> what were you watching? <laughs> well, at a certain age, decorating the tree and stuff like that always was a family tradition. So na- mainly I had it on ABC, or they had it on ABC. And uh, that's okay. when, you know, you see all the the festive movies like Charlie Brown and all the like stereotypical like Disney at Christmas kind of things. <laughs> okay, I'll give you that much. Of, of course, my family being night owls, we we put up the Christmas tree pretty late. But I do recall, I do recall late at night we'd have uh you know, stuff like like the Grinch on or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the claymation stuff and the, the, and the good the good Grinch like the the cartoon Grinch, not the Jim Carrey one. What You mean the I'm... most quotable movie ever? Is it uh, though? Eh. <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> a single quote hearts from of that the world unite. I yeah, quote I the don't Grinch remember. movie like you don't remember that? I I quote the Grinch movie more than I probably should, apparently. I, I mean okay, the one quote I do remember was that Oh no! The sleigh and the presents and I care <laughs> So that, I'll that be was, honest. If I remember any lines from the Jim Carrey Grinch, it's just because it's from the animated Grinch. So this week for our Christmas holiday episode, I have the pleasure of bringing to you the 19, was it 1970? Uh, Santa Claus is coming to town. Yeah, Santa Claus (laughs) coming down 1970. Uh, Now, Frosty was 1969. And Rudolph and, the Red and Nose Rudolph Ranger is 1964. Yeah. 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 And these are the three titles we will be covering today. All right. So 
let's let's break down probably the best of the three, uh, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The short opens with a mailman who's delivering letters to Santa Claus. He then goes out of his way to open some of these letters, which is mail fraud, by the way, and answers <laughs> some of these kids' questions. Like, why are you so big? Why do you wear the red suit? Why do you only come to us once a year? Stuff like that. He then goes out of his way to explain that Santa was raised by a group of elves with the last name Kringle. He then learned to become a toy maker. And once Chris got so good at making these toys, he started making trips to the village where they had band toys. And Chris is like, that's absurd. I'm going to keep bringing you guys toys. He falls in love with a girl named Jessica. And on his way back... He befriends a wizard, a warlock, if you will, who teaches him some of his magic. Well, as time goes by, Chris becomes known as an outlaw because he's delivering all these toys. So Chris eventually says, you know what? I'm going to go by my orphan name of Claus. I'm going to grow a beard so nobody recognizes me, but I'm still going to keep bringing these toys. Eventually, the the leader of this town dies and people find out that, Hey, you know what? Outlawing toys was a stupid idea. So they just keep saying, Hey, I want this. I want this. I want this. Chris eventually says the load is coming. It's too much for me to deliver all at once. So I'm going to narrow my search down to once a year, thus giving us our iconic Santa Claus. That sounds so badass. It really does. This <laughs> begins. Yeah, Santa Claus the Outlaw. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. My name is Kringle. Chris Kringle. <laughs> Out of the three of them, this is definitely my favorite, and I think it had the most originality to it. Yes, I think uh, so too. Re- Rebecca, before we you know go too far into explaining these movies... How do you feel about like the claymation and the stop motion? Is this is this a technique you wish you could see more of, or is this um, something that you consider a dying art? Because it it is a dying art, unfortunately. I I personally okay. I respect claymation. I really do. But the thing is, I I was just never really that into it, that fond of it, as I am with two uh, D drawing animation. It's but. But I do, uh, I do appreciate the art and its originality, and I've noticed that it's, it's not just a claymation; it's it's puppetry too. I've noticed that there are strings like attached to the warlock's hand and feet for him to walk, because I've noticed that. Yes, uh, the claymation, it, it was all right. I mean, it was no Nightmare Before Christmas, but that, that's okay. That's okay. It was like before that, and. Uh, I do, uh, I kind of have to agree with you. I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily like a dying art. It's just, it's becoming more of a a relic, really. And uh, I think uh, when someone sees Claymation every now and then, their their imaginations are reopened and like, ooh, what's this? So I'm going to jump in here real quick. Uh, I I know I said it earlier and I said it in jest, but I hate the term claymation. 
Uh, and I find it truly, I don't mean to be pedantic here, but like I find it truly uh, reductive to the art. And what it is is stop motion animation. This is the stuff pioneered or perfected by Willis O'Brien and King Kong or Ray Harryhausen and the numerous projects he had like Clash of the Titans. I, I think I think stop motion animation is is a wonderful special effects tool and art. And the one thing, Rebecca, I will agree on is that it's not it, it it is a relic. You're right, it is a relic. We don't see it anymore. You know, no one uses stop motion animation for creature features like King Kong or Clash of the Titans anymore. And when they were used a lot for these holiday, these Christmas stories, it was great. It was great that they kind of found like a new lease on life there. But even now, people will forego that for, say, CG animation instead. I, I think, you know, we'll, we'll be covering Rudolph later here, but I think one of the, the many sequels in the Rudolph lineage is actually CG Yes, in the 2000s, which pains me. <laughs> yeah. And I also have to, to say, I, I don't agree that it's merely okay. I think the massive quality leap from Rudolph in 1964 to Santa Claus is coming to town in, in this film is very noticeable. Because here we have more miniatures, we have more trees, we have more detail in the houses and whatnot. We have more characters filling up the space. And I think the the animation isn't quite as jerky as it is in the 1964 film either. Santa Claus coming to town isn't exactly a smooth looking form of animation, but I think that that all I think the jerkiness of the animation lends to the charm of of the characters and the world in Santa Claus coming to town. And I got to say, I, I, I love the art form. Uh, Rebecca, you mentioned you, you weren't as into it, but I love this art form. I, I wish I knew a little bit more about it. I, I get stuck in my tokusatsu rut with miniatures and submation, but I do find that stop motion animation is, is an excellent practical effects brethren to that and this film this film really blew my socks off with my stockings off if you will with the amount <laughs> of miniatures and characters that this had in comparison to rudolph i think it did very well well and there's something to say about that you know you're saying the jerkiness and all that is kind of what lends the charm to it. I haven't really seen these movies. I mean, for like, I haven't sat down and watched them for a very long time. And that's, I have to agree with you about the, the charm of these movies. Cause every time I pass the TV, I'm like, Oh, that's on TV. Why don't I watch that anymore? And kind of, I guess I, I, uh, chalk it up to you know being older and stuff like that and putting that behind me but as i as i grow up in years and i start to recognize other movies i'm like you know there really is something special about watching these movies again 
jerkiness and claymation at all. And I gotta say, these are some of the best brightly colored, like, themed movies I've seen for for this, like, holiday. Or, you know, it beats something like uh, most modern Christmas Day movies. Like, uh, you know, I'll say this is more colorful than, like, the Santa Claus or something like that. Well, I think being a product of children's stop-motion animation, it needs to have that color palette to satisfy uh, kind of the attention span of its younger audience. (laughs) And not to say that adults can't enjoy it. We clearly do. But... I mean, we, we could also go into much deeper into this and say that the color palette of most movies these days is a lot more narrow than it was in most productions back in the 60s and 70s. I mean, by God, if we look at science fiction today versus, say, the sets of the original 1966 Star Trek, yeah, absolutely, there's a greater range of color in, in, in that. So I again, I would say that's kind of a product of, a, of the time. And something else I think is a product of the time is this really bizarre moment in Santa Claus coming to town, which sticks out like a sore thumb, but I'm, I'm actually really glad it's there, where Jessica goes into this, her, her song, and we get these like psychedelic swirls and these very... <laughs> 1960s-esque stylistic images that that age the film but i like how it kind of ages the film you know it up to that point of santa claus coming to town it was it was a very straightforward basic christmas story and then this comes out of nowhere <laughs> and I, I remember you and i sitting there going when this come out in the seventies, oh yeah, this makes more well, sense. Well, it, it really had more of a sixties flair. It, it, it's it's nineteen seventy, so the sixties is still very much in the ingrained in our minds or the 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 audience's minds and culture. And it was just bizarre to me that they shoehorned that in there. I assume to reel in more of the audience for that time. Cause you know, suddenly Jessica has a hairstyle that's evocative of the 1960s. And I guess, you know, people would look at that and be like, Oh yeah, that's kind of cool. <laughs> look at her, look at her clothes now. And look at the, look at all the yeah. trippy backgrounds I and you know, well, yeah, I, I definitely noticed that once she uh, quote unquote, like fell in love and, started singing her song. I was like, oh, wow, she's she's more colorful now. Well, well, um, yeah, I, 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 I liked that part. And I liked how it was her transformation. It was her, it was her moment of character development. She kind of reminded me of a, well, I'm going to go all biblical here. She reminded me of Mary Magdalene, like in a way. I mean, they have similar traits. They both uh, lived uh, a life of darkness and, they didn't they didn't even know they were in darkness they just lived life and then all of a sudden there's this one man that comes into their, into their lives and that changed them forever and her song and her clothes her her look just immediately goes from 
from her pat from her past uh her past pains to now to her healing if that makes any sense i like that read i like the the mary magdalene yeah comparison as well and you know because they they bring this up later where he's like you know, I, I can only do this once a year. What day should I pick? And then they they go their way to say December twenty fifth, the most holiest of nights. I think that comparison of uh, Jessica to Mary Magdalene is very appropriate in this mm-hmm. setting because that's another thing that these old stop motion animation movies did hinted at. You know the christianity relationship between right uh santa claus and jesus which i find very appropriate right and i i love the biblical and historical parallels in this one uh the part where chris tells jessica to let the doors unlock for the children who ask for toys at night uh, reminds me of passover where the israelites would paint their doorways with lamb's blood so the plague would, pa- would not would pass them um yeah and I I got that same vibe, Rebecca. Yeah. That was interesting. I also found it very profound and bold to make the uh, uh, Burgermeister, Jägermeister, Mayor, whatever his name is, uh, into a dictator with a German dialect. Uh, I mean, it wasn't long. It wasn't that long since uh, World War Two, and when when this came out, I did not make that connection. Oh yeah, and the fact that I did not make that connection, and the fact that uh, they did use a reference for passover of the israelites and the uh overlords were <clears throat> german kind of <laughs> i mean think about it kind of clicks there's there's a lot of parallels there's a lot of historical uh mythological parallels here i agree and uh you know another going back to kind of the psychedelic swirls and whatnot that were evocative of the 1960s could have very well it's interesting rebecca that you mentioned that this was the point where she realized she was falling in love and she was falling in love with a style that was dominant during the kind of free love era now depending on what historian you talk to that (laughs) lets us know how well the free love movement went back then is kind of irrelevant in this case because the whole concept of free love, I think, really, really clicks with her moment when she realizes she's she's falling for Chris. And so I, I think, Rebecca, what you've you've done is find a, a swirl of relevant historical mythological beats within this story that really, really helps complicate the short here complicates or well no no i mean complicates in a good way i mean it adds a sense of layer and complexity to it i think what you have done is create a sense of depth for the story at least your read of it you've made it easier to pull more out of the conversation of this movie oh yeah okay 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 so I also loved hearing Mickey Rooney's voice as Chris Kringle. I thought he really captured the nature of Santa Claus. Oh, yeah. We haven't really... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> landed we on that. Talked about, we haven't talked about the cast of this. I mean, first of all, ah, oh, Mickey Rooney is Santa. Ah, uh, that makes me so happy. To me, he will always be... Mickey to- Rooney is... He will always be Todd from The Fox and the Hound. Yes, he was Todd. Yeah. 
Mickey Rooney is just like one of those people that I consider like Hollywood's grandfather. I love Mickey Rooney. <laughs> yeah. Him and Jude. And then the the uh, mailman, for those of you who don't know, is actually uh, Fred Astaire. Rankin and Bass did an excellent job of casting these things, really getting some prominent uh, names in these things that obviously they're there just to draw a crowd. But I, I also think that it adds to the timelessness of these stories. So I'm, I was I was very impressed with the cast. It tickled me that uh, Mickey Rooney was in this. And I appreciate I appreciate that they really don't just phone in the the cast of talent in these things like just going into this i was like oh my gosh i didn't know all these cool people were in it which again brings me back to this kind of time and place in my life where i was like oh this is such a magical movie because even as a young kid i knew fred astaire's name and mickey rooney's name so it's it's a very nostalgic piece of media that still feels relevant within my life well let's let's move on to the next one here and i think we should uh we should kind of buffer our two uh stop motion animation stories with a 2d animation story so the next one we're going to do is is frosty but before we do that i'm going to go into uh rankin and, and bass here for a second they're the ones that produce all of these uh, holiday stories. And they were initially called Videocraft International. That's what they were known as during the production of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. For Frosty and Santa Claus is Coming to Town, they were just known as Rankin-Bass Entertainment. And it started up in, in 1960, just four years before Rudolph, and they folded in 1987. Now, most people, they know... Rankin and Bass for the Christmas season output that we're talking about today. And that's probably what they should be known for. They did an excellent job with these, these shorts. I personally know Rankin and Bass because they produced an animated series called The King Kong Show, which was co-produced with Toei Animation, the production company of Rebecca. Hmm. Hmm? Oh come on! For Pete's sake, you know who produced what Toei Animation produced? Rebecca. Oh my you God! Hurt my soul. <laughs> you of all people. You hurt my. I'm sorry, soul. I'm drawing a blank I think, here. I. <laughs> I think Rebecca should be the one who knows this, and we shouldn't. Honestly, how how is Rebecca the fan favorite? Speechless. Wait, Transformers on Toy Animation. Oh my gosh. Anyway, they produced Dragon Ball. Oh yeah, that, that oh those guys, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry, I was. I thought you would have nailed that. I'm I'm, I'm embarrassed. That hurts. That... The subordinates on your podcast are embarrassed for you, Rebecca. We we have to end the show. We, we... <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I can't go on. On the series finale of Drift Space, <laughs> Rebecca forgets who produces Dragon Ball. Anyway. Next time on Dragon Ball Z. 
Rankin and Bass had a lot of connections with Japanese studios, including Toho, the studio responsible for the Godzilla series, and Subaraya Productions, the production company responsible for, for Ultraman. Now, Rankin Bass wanted a movie a lot like their King Kong show, so they produced uh, a movie with Toho called King Kong Escapes, directed by Ashiro Honda of the original Godzilla and the same basic crew for most of the Godzilla films of that era. Today, Rankin and Bass's film library is owned by Universal and DreamWorks, which is how we were able to watch these films today. And their 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 holiday output is actually much, much, much greater than just these three films. And I didn't realize that. Did you? Yeah, I've known they've been uh, responsible for cranking out some of these classics. See, I didn't. I didn't know that the Rudolph franchise was a franchise this big or that there were this many frosty the snowman sequels as well but they have a massive library that is now owned by universal i'm just glad that despite the fact that they're no longer a company that someone has the rights to to put out some quality releases of these of these stories and the next one of them is frosty the snowman and in this animated short a snowman, Frosty, comes to life after the hat of an inept magician is placed on his head. Unable to survive the, the warmer temperatures of his current location, Frosty's friend Karen <laughs> takes him to the North Pole. It's unfortunate her name is Karen. Yeah. But it... <laughs> and so it began. <laughs> I, and I, was, I kept looking at it wondering if there was going to be a moment where we could link back the Karen memes to this, but there really wasn't anything I could, well, I could twist. We'd like to apologize for Karen's off this one, uh, Karen. She did something good. A long time ago, there was a time where Karen's... <laughs> Let Not me so. tell you a story about Frosty the Snowman and the brave adventurer we call Karen. <laughs> the legend of the Karen, yeah. <laughs> Rebecca, I've been cur- curious to uh, hear from you for, about this one. What, what were some of your thoughts on the animation for a 25-minute film? Did it meet the expectations for that time? Well, here's the thing. I remember watching this as a kid on Cartoon Network, and I could have sworn it was a lot longer at that time. Maybe it was the commercial breaks. I don't know. But l- looking at it now, I kind of realize, okay, the, the animation and the drawings are fine. They're fine. But it's the it was the audio and the sound editing that kind of eh, kind of threw me off a bit. Let me uh, threw me off balance a bit because th- they weren't really. They didn't quite link up with what the animation was was doing. Yes, I do uh, appreciate the the whole the whole two D animation in its early stages, and I I think it it reminded me a lot of Schoolhouse Rock. I would like to know if it's the same animators. I didn't even think about Schoolhouse Rock when I was watching it, but I see it now that you've you've made the comparison. Oh yeah, absolutely, and. Of course, the one thing that drove me crazy about this one was that Karen didn't have any pants on in the winter. Of course she was freezing. Her legs are exposed <laughs> to frostbite, which probably Thank which probably you. I'm sure Frosty accidentally gave her as he was carrying her throughout the whole time. 
The girl has a good heart, but she's an idiot for dressing like that for the winter. <laughs> Seriously, I had to bundle up from from watching this. It was. Mm. <laughs> 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 okay, well here's here's a detail I liked and I found funny. It was the it was the train ride to the North Pole, or or rather the initial plan for the train ride to the North Pole in 1969 was $3,000 and four cents. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, even without inflation, our investment in convenient travel is <laughs> Yeah. And, and the scene where they calculate the amount isn't even that important. It's just like Rankin Bass just had a bone to pick with the North American transportation infrastructure. Like, you know, everything's wholesome and sweet about this film. Merry Christmas, everyone. Our public transportation sucks, but Merry <laughs> Christmas, everyone. <laughs> Don't go abroad for the holidays. Speaking on animation, I, you know, I liked how, because I'm sitting here just looking at some of the stills from the movie, and I really like how um, you can kind of relate to this, G. Uh, I like how the characters are, like, in the forefront, and they really pop, but the background kind of is faded in the back a little bit. But if you look at the background, if you like really look at the background, you see how detailed it is. And I, I might be shot for saying this, but sometimes as some of these stills, I'm wondering if the background is more detailed than our characters, which it kind of, it kind of makes me think of like looking through a camera and focusing on in on your main subject and letting the background blur because like i'm looking at the the scene in the greenhouse where uh frosty and karen are sitting and man the detail on some of these flowers is just ridiculous so i gotta say hats off to them for some of this animation it's great well i would say and i think rebecca you can back me up on this or shoot me down but i feel like background paintings for for animated films typically are more detailed and the reason for that is because they aren't moving right usually yeah it, it it's much easier to put more and more detail into things that you don't have to animate whereas the more lines you add to a character the more lines you have to animate in the next frame and the next frame and the next frame. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, most uh, 2D animation, especially during the 60s, most of the backgrounds are, background artwork is detailed and very aesthetically pleasing because they're non-movable. They, they're not going to be animated. But yes, you're right, GJ. It mo mostly, mostly, as I said before, most backgrounds are in more detail than than the animated characters because the characters are the ones that are the main focus and they're going to be they're the ones that are going to be moving they're going to be talking and no no i i will not shoot you down for that one <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much here's the thing i found the most curious about this film and i'm not sure what to think of it so i'm going to ask you guys what do you think the significance of professor hinkle's hat is because Hinkle seems to be skeptical of its own magical properties until he sees it bring Frosty to life. But why did it bring Frosty to life? 
right? So me being the Christmas fanatic in the group, uh, I will answer this with um, a quote from uh, from Santa Claus. Seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing. You know, maybe maybe the want of these kids to believe in something so fantastical as a talking snowman made that magic come to life. You know, maybe we'll, we'll chalk this up to like Christmas magic, if you will. But that's kind of my take. Cause I've always been one of these people that, that says Christmas is a magical time of year. And I'm not saying magic as in, you know, Professor What's-His-Face over there trying to do a failed pull-your-bunny-out-of-the-hat trick. Uh, yeah. Christmas Christmas to me is magical just because everybody seems to be a bit happier and a bit lighter. It's It seems that, like we're, we're more susceptible to kind, de- kind deeds done by other people. So maybe that was the charm in that hat maybe he was just a a scrooge and cynical and just didn't want to believe i don't know but that's that's my two cents on that i gotta agree with jay on that i i do i think it has a lot to do with uh the children's faith and believing that frosty can come to life and uh, i have also believe that uh, professor, it's Professor Hinkle's greed and vanity that kept him from being, well, magical in the first place. So you you don't think it was necessarily the hat, but like the user of the hat or whoever the hat came near or in contact that responded. Possibly yeah, pretty to much. Okay, all because right. Let's, I'm, let's, I'm not. In- let's hypothesis this. We didn't really see the rabbit come out of the hat until it was thrown away. That is true. I guess, I mean, I don't really have any theories about this, but I I find it interesting that the quote-unquote worst magician in the world owns a piece of equipment that gives life. And I think there's something wonderful in that, but I can't quite put my finger on it. And I wish I had more time to marinate on it. I, I, I want to reach back and consider ancient myths where an antagonist's tool or weapon gave a hero great powers or something like that. It's just, it's a very interesting plot point to me. Let's take off with Rudolph. <laughs> it was the very first Christmas special by Rankin Bass Productions, who also did The Little Drummer Boys, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, like we just did, Twas the Night Before Christmas, and many others. And they were also famously uh, known for producing the 1985 Thundercats show for all you 80s babies out there. Now, the story opens up with a talking snowman named Sam, voiced by the late Burl Ives, who narrates a time where Christmas almost did not happen due to a terrible snowstorm, but was saved by a reindeer named Rudolph. From the day Rudolph was born, he's always been deemed deformed and unfit due to his mysterious glowing red nose. During his childhood, when his nose was revealed in public, he's been surrounded by nothing but bullying and laughter. Even his own father, Donner, was ashamed of him due to his quote-unquote deformity. Meanwhile, back at Santa's workshop, an elf named 
Hermie has dreams of becoming a dentist, but is constantly being ridiculed by his boss that his place is to make toys and nothing else. Eventually, Hermie and Rudolph find each other and share their mutual dislike of trying to fit in with society, so the two run away and end up meeting a prospector named Yukon Cornelius. So, throughout the movie, Rudolph even condemns his own nose for giving away his location and narrowly escaping the clutches of the abominable snowman. Later, upon discovering an island filled with homeless toys, Rudolph, Rudolph fears for endangering everyone's safety because of his glowing nose. So he sets out alone into the snowy region for the next few months. As a grown young buck, Rudolph eventually reunites with his family and friends by rescuing them from the abominable snowman. However, a hazardous snowstorm has taken place during that time. Before he was about to announce that Christmas was canceled, Santa looks upon Rudolph's nose and asks him to guide a sleigh tonight to save Christmas. And as many people already know how the movie and the song goes, Rudolph went down in history. Okay, I'm gonna go on a rant here, so bear with me. <clears throat> well, not really, not really. Brace yourselves, guys. Rebecca's going. Well, on no, a it's rant. not really. A, I mean, what it's is, not really a rant. What? Is, when is this different from any other time? <laughs> okay, at first, I thought this was probably the most depressing specials out of all the three, but I took a step back and thought about it for a few minutes and did some research. Obviously, the main message of this movie was that being different is never a bad thing, and you can overcome the odds by such. Moving on, this this was released in 1964. It was a rather pivotal pivotal time in American history. Uh, Johnson took over office shortly after JFK's assassination. The Civil Rights Movement and Vietnam War were underway. Young people were rebelling against old people. It was the beginning of several ideologies that would divide a nation. Now, don't quote me on this be, being true or not, because from what I've gathered, I kind of have a theory. I, I think the movie Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer seemed to personify these current events. Rudolph representing the new generation and his glowing nose as the new ideas. Santa and Donner, whom I both thought were real jerks in this actually represented the older generation with their strict conservative values. Even Clarice and Rudolph's mother were representing a new era for women taking a stand in the workforce. That part where Donner tells his wife to stay home when he goes out to find Rudolph because it's a man's job. His, his wife and Clarice both team up and practically defy Donner's orders to go and help find Rudolph anyway. I like to think that the... Uh, the abominable snowman represented the Vietnam conflict and him eventually joining everyone in Santa's workshop might have been some form of hope that they would try and integrate Vietnam into with American ideals. Fortunately, little did they know that would never happen. As for the misfit toys, perhaps they represented all the minorities who were taking a stand during the civil rights movement, the ones that were being shunned and looked away or arrested because of the color of their skin. Finally, the snowstorm represents the anxiety, stress, and fear of change that average Americans were going through. So that moment when Santa Claus looked upon Rudolph's glowing red nose was a moment where the older generation finally puts aside their older values 
and begins to open up to the next generation's light as their only salvation. During this point in time, America needed some hope. They were still grieving over the loss of the president and everything was changing too fast for the older generation and the newer. All kinds of conflict, both outside and inside the United States, was taking a toll on everyone. So what better to bring everyone together through a young reindeer with a glowing red nose that not only that not only guides Santa's sleigh, but also guides everyone through the storm. Yeah. I, mm. Wow. <laughs> you no, went she's... a lot deeper than I wanted to. <laughs> but you know what, Jer? She's right. Yeah, I can't say like, you're I've, wrong. I've been thinking. I've been thinking about this one the most out of the three, and and she's right. This is. To me, this was the most uncomfortable of the three. And and starting with how uncomfortable it was, I mean, good grief, were they hostile. Yeah. Donner is not the dad of the year. No, uh, he's not. Comet is not a coach I'm going to look at for inspirational quotes. And Santa <laughs> acted like he was on the verge of saying, screw it, everyone gets coal. It, it, the <laughs> Rudolph's world is so painfully against him just for having a glowing red nose. And while I do think it's alarming enough that they should have, you know, gotten that looked at, uh, the idea is, of course, that he's he's too different to pull Santa's sleigh or date other reindeer, which is a sentence I just said. And <laughs> the bothersome thing about this story is Rebecca's right. It, it, it's, it came out in 1964, right in the dead center of the civil rights movement, the same year as the Civil Rights Act. And I think the parallel is just too great to ignore. Rudolph uh, was treated unfairly because he was different. And that difference, that divide, really was was a strength, not a, not a weakness or a reason to be prejudiced. And it's worth bringing up that the story is empowering for those who experience that kind of prejudice. Uh, you know, the elf, what, what's the elf, his elf friend's name? Hermie? Uh, Hermie, yeah, Hermie. Hermie. Uh, uh, he aligns with that too. He wants to be a dentist instead of a toy maker. And I think that plays into a lot of different ideas, like the expectation of others versus what you want. But, you know, what's also interesting, and Rebecca, you did touch on this, that this was hard for many different sides. But what what's also interesting is not just the way Rudolph was treated, but how Rudolph forgave as well. Right, yeah. And, 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 and as much of a jerk Donner was and, and Santa and uh, Clarice's father were, they, they all admitted to being wrong to Rudolph and apologized to him. And you, what, you know what Rudolph didn't do? He didn't take to social media in an attempt to cancel out his father or Santa. He, he, he forgave. <laughs> and I think there's a lot in this movie that is still very relevant today, just as it was in the 1960s, and, and kind of puts different sides under a very uncomfortable microscope, which is probably why my jaw was, was dropped for the majority of the, the runtime. Yeah, it's, it was a hard one to sit through. It was. I, I found it very difficult to sit through. It was very not, uncomfortable. Not in... Yes. Yeah. Yes. There was another... And, you know, Go these on. topics are sensitive. 
these are sensitive topics, but I think it's dishonest not to address them. And and let's be honest, this this story is in the spirit of Christmas and goodwill toward all men. And 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 the division amongst all these characters mirroring what you know was going on at the time, it it it, it begs them to unite with goodwill for each other. And they do. They do unite with goodwill for each other. Yeah, I, I think what you're saying is right that this isn't in the spirit of Christmas because it's in the spirit of forgiveness. Exactly. Yeah. And acceptance. And acceptance. Yeah. That's a that's a huge one. I mean, yeah, Rudolph forgave, but the others also accepted him. Mm-hmm. I it 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 really it's this movie has been on my mind for the last twenty four hours, and uh, I I can't I can't seem to shake. What are, what are pretty transparent themes, I'll admit, but man, are they strong. And Rebecca, we keep cutting you off. I apologize. What? It's okay. It, it's just, there was another character I felt uh, sorry for as well. It was the abominable snowman. Uh, the poor guy got his freaking teeth ripped out by him. <laughs> I know. <laughs> by an elf. After watching this, my first thought was, Hermie, you sick little freak. I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> I get he was trying to save Rudolph and his family, but still, that was just downright morbid. I can bet you that kids in 64 weren't worried about being bullied or being different. No, they I, no, they ran back to their bathrooms and scrubbed the whiteness off their teeth so they wouldn't have to go back to the dentist. That was, that was just awful. God, almost. There's, there's a percentage of me that wants to take that comment so, uh, seriously, Rebecca. <laughs> there's something in in the fact that Hermie wanted to be a dentist like why would they have have written in an elf that wanted to be children's worst nightmares (laughs) (laughs) not a very inviting variable to the story (laughs) so Rebecca with with all I'm just just sitting here thinking you named everybody except the the prospector no, I mentioned him. Uh, Yukon? Yeah, Yukon Cornelius. What was, what was, what was his beef? Uh, well, like, besides the fact that he looked like a combination... Besides the fact that he looked like a combination between Yosemite Sam and that Viner Jake Holland... Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't... I can't keep up with her anymore, Jr. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Who's Jake? I gotta go to my computer. Who's Jake Holland now? The guy, Pete, the pizza beard guy. You know, oh, that's yeah. his the name. Guy, yeah, because he does that cosplay so great. <laughs> I know, but it's his beard that's the iconic. Uh, makes him so iconic. <laughs> but right, so, what was what was so bad about him? Because he did seem he accepted. Uh, I don't think there- Rudolph. Yeah, I don't think there was anything bad about uh, Yukon Cornelius. I, I thought, honestly, I couldn't really, I couldn't really think of what his deal or beef was. I think maybe he was just. My theory was that he probably he was obsessed with uh, finding silver and gold. Correct, and uh, I guess. Yeah. So, do you think he's he represents greed? No, I think he pro- must might have represented like a. Uh, 
America's economy at, at one point. I don't know. I don't know. How was the economy going in the 60s? I, uh, I mean, we were at war. It wasn't great. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> I don't think it does. I think, if anything, there's something to be said about a character who's um, out looking for wealth, physical wealth, worldly wealth, but ends up finding something more. Something, something more, yeah. Okay. All and right. he did. He did through his own trials. He did through his own fight. And yeah, that was he... so. Wait, Yukon represents the American dream, looking for a good, looking for wealth, but looking for something more. Basically, no, I just think he 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 represents Yosemite Sam. I'm gonna stick with that one. <laughs> All right, that, that, that has me right there. Because <laughs> he, he even has the 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 pistol, the six shooter. On his belt, which I, <laughs> which why didn't he, why didn't he no, use no, that? He had a revolver. <laughs> why didn't he use that against the the abominable snowman? That that would be. I have no idea. That scene would that would be less painful than getting his teeth ripped out. I because can tell you they that. Wanted to scare kids into brushing their teeth. Apparently, <laughs> I just... I'm not sure that worked. <laughs> he just pulls it out, looking at the monster spinning it around on his finger revolver <laughs> snake we've been expecting you oh, metal gear rudolph <laughs> rudolph 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 <laughs> All right, so we've successfully devolved. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, obviously, there are three completely different Christmas specials, but mm-hmm. I-, I noticed that all of them have one thing in common, other than the subject of Christmas. Each special's uh, main character is different, rejected, alone, but overall pure-hearted. Now... Give me one good guess on who I'm talking about. Who they represent. Sam. Who they represent. <laughs> the pizza guy. Okay, I'm gonna... What is the traffic <laughs> oh, 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 I got it, I got it. <laughs> Toei Animation. <laughs> Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> yeah. Okay. They're they're never gonna let me go on that one. Okay, I'm ta- I'm talking about Christ, you little you little hell spawn Satan's. That's not very Christmas of you, <laughs> Unicron spawn. <laughs> <laughs> so these these Christmas specials, each of them, they're telling the story of Christ, not as a savior or son of God. No, as a regular person, obviously in the form of different characters. We were taught at a young age the story of the birth of Christ and how he came to save mankind. However, a lot of us, especially we grown-ups, still overlook at how he lived as a man. Like Chris Kringle, he was he was a baby born into a musty and somber world. Like Frosty, he was a child who had a lot to learn. Like Rudolph, he was ridiculed and hated by his own people and family because of his words and, and his differences. But But also like Chris Kringle, he saw the goodness and hope even in his enemies, and gave them the gift of friendship, 
like Frosty, he loved and protected and played games with children. And of course, like Rudolph, he gave the world the light of hope, not by his divinity, but by his love and compassion towards everyone. Now, forgive me if I sound like a Bible-thumping preacher, but whenever I watch any of my favorite movies or shows, I, I always try to look for reasons as to how they parallel with the Bible, and I find a lot of parallels within them. And these Christmas specials are, are no different. Why? Because the common denominator I find in a lot of them is love. Love is not a feeling, but a decision, an action. Love is also a person, and we see a lot of love's legacies and actions transcended through these Christmas specials and through real life. Not just for the Christmas season, season, but for all year round, for the rest of our lives. And unfortunately, it's something we all easily overlook once the new year begins. But it still lives around and within us, and in the words of Rafiki from The Lion King, he lives in you. So live. Rebecca, that was such a uh, beautiful and powerful sentiment, I think. Uh, I think, you know, it's an appropriate way to end our episode. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you. I, I don't want to <laughs> make any more uh, stupid jokes after that, so... Let's, no, I, uh, I can't top that. Let's. Uh, it's been a while since we did poorly pitched. So, GJ, I think it was you. Uh, it was me. Uh, we've been doing a lot of uh, mini episodes known as Maximum Drift for the last couple of months. So it's been a while since we've actually done a poorly pitched. So I'm going to reiterate our last one. A purple jungle man kills Shang Tsung. And from all of us at the Drift Space, we'd like to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays. We hope that you spend lots of time with your loved ones and family and just enjoy each other's presence. But in the meantime, my name is JR. If you know where to find me, I'm over there on Twitter at littleman underscore says one. And I also have the Instagram, littlemancosplay. And I'm G. You can find me on Twitter, G-Man of Mysterioid, and you can check out my substack called Deferential Wrath of a Rusting Markalite Cannon at markalite.substack.com. And I'm Rebecca. If you'd like to check out some of my artwork, you can now find me on the Linktree app, linktr.ee slash reb.hudge. And we, in fact, are the Drift Space. Thanks for playing along, listening to this episode. If you want to know where to find us, you can check out all our links on bit.ly backslash TDS links. And remember, guys, always stay strapped. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. I miss Dave. I miss Dave.